Hello and welcome to the podcast of the Roy Dennis Wildlife Foundation, based in the Highlands of Scotland, working towards the restoration of species at home and abroad. This week, more than most, as we talk about the hazards of migration, the story I tell will depend on where I choose to make my edits. With ospreys on their way to Africa and some not making it, do I focus on a sense of sadness and a sense of loss? It really hits home because you've watched that bird, you've raised that bird. To then lose it is really heartbreaking. It's just so sad. He was a very strong bird and in great condition. So to lose him at this late stage has definitely come as a bit of a shock. You've managed to see them grow and get these personalities through that you've got used to seeing every day. I'm going to really miss them. Or do I make this podcast instead about the day-to-day realities of working with wildlife, about the fact that loss is just part of the picture? Here are those osprey researchers again, this time telling both sides of their story. It really hits home because you've watched that bird, you've raised that bird. To then lose it is really heartbreaking, but you have to remain professional. It's a threat that these birds face throughout their lifetimes. It's just so sad. He was a very strong bird and in great condition. So to lose him at this late stage has definitely come as a bit of a shock. What we now know to be an instance of natural predation is something that our birds will come up against, which is daunting, but part of nature. Get these personalities through that you've got used to seeing every day. I'm going to really miss them. Learning to let go of that and know that they'll maybe not return is is a difficult thing, but you have no control once they've gone. Brittany Maxted, Lucy Allen and Liv Cooper were talking about the death of one of the 11 ospreys moved as chicks by Roy and his team from Scotland to the south coast of England in year three of a five-year project with the conservation charity Birds of Pool Harbour. The birds, once released, spent weeks getting to know their new home patch before setting off on migration earlier this month. But one bird, 025, was killed just before he left. Brittany Maxted, the Osprey Project Officer in Pool Harbour, takes up the story. One of our Osprey Project assistants noticed that over the course of the last 24 hours, we had had a pretty constant signal for 025 coming from a single direction to the northwest of our monitoring base. Um, and the signal was fairly weak, which can either mean that the bird is far away or it can mean that the A bird is somewhere low down on the ground or behind some sort of hill or vegetation. We hadn't seen it feeding. She took the initiative to go out and look for it. She tracked the signal over the whole estate and uh, ended up in this bracken copse. Um, There were no large trees nearby and the signal was coming down from down on the ground. So she was fairly certain that the signal was on the ground and that the bird was there as well. I'm Lucy. I am a project assistant on the Birds of Pool Harbour Osprey Translocation Project. Osprey are definitely creatures of habit. Uh, They tend to feed around the same time every day. They use the same perches and the same areas every day, for example. So they can develop a regular pattern of behaviour and you can really get to know each one and really get to know its different habits. I had noticed that 025 uh, hadn't come in to feed, which isn't unheard of for an osprey, but was unusual for him. Uh, So I cross-referenced this with the last couple of radio tracking readings, um, which showed a weak signal uh, from roughly the same direction over a period of time. 
Again, in isolation, uh, that might not be unusual, but in combination with him not appearing uh, when he normally would, um, I wanted to make sure that he was okay. We were hoping there was a possibility that the bird might have shed its tail feather to which the tag is attached, but unfortunately this was not the case, um, and we spent a lot of time searching through the bracken for it and eventually, unfortunately, found it. My heart sank as the signal became stronger the closer I got to him, but straight away it indicated that not all was well. Um, as I got the strongest signal from foliage on the ground, um, not the top of a tree like you would hope for a healthy offspray. We were able to recover him um, and began to piece together what had actually happened to him. We want to know if there had been any sort of foul play or anything at all. We want to, we want to be absolutely sure that we can rule those kind of things out. So we sent the bird for an x-ray first and there was no evidence of any lead shot or any metal in its body. So that was a really important thing for us to tick off. We then sent it off for a post-mortem, um, which has come back as saying that the bird was in absolutely brilliant condition, but unfortunately it does appear to have been predated by a, a carnivorous mammal, most likely a fox. And that story is mirrored by that of Carr, a juvenile osprey which had made fantastic progress to Africa, as we heard from Tim McCrill in last week's podcast. Because the conditions were so good, it took Carr just three days to get through Spain. And on that third day, he flew past Cadiz, which itself is a great place to see ospreys. Some ospreys from northern Europe will only go that far. They remain there for the whole of the winter. But obviously there was something within Carl that was just driving him south. And he followed the coast of Spain down to Tarifa, and then he crossed the Strait of Gibraltar to Morocco. So just 11 days after leaving Carbridge, he was already in Africa. He'd flown two and a half thousand kilometres. But sadly, it was noticed that Carr's signal, like 025's, had remained static for some time. So we get the data from Carr's transmitter every evening, and it's really exciting to log on and see what progress each of the birds is doing. But in this case, what we noticed is for three days, he wasn't moving at all. And just like the bird at Pool Harbour, that really means that alarm bells start to ring because... Although that bird had found somewhere to stop over for a few days, we knew he was at a reservoir just, uh, just north of the Atlas Mountains and he'd been moving around the reservoir, presumably catching fish. It's very unusual for it to be in exactly the same location. So that suggested something was wrong. But of course, with all that satellite data and, and all the technology, what we don't know is exactly what's happened. So it could have been that the transmitter had dropped off the bird, which is possible or maybe the bird was injured, or worst case scenario, it had died. But that data can't tell us that. So, so in Poole, Lucy had gone out to look for the bird. So you needed someone like that. Exactly, so we needed someone like that. So we decided the best course of action was to put out an appeal. So we did that on our Facebook page and also on Twitter. And before you know it, it's fantastic. There's this kind of global community of ornithologists and two Moroccan ornithologists actually offered to go and look. And they're based in, in Marrakesh, which is just probably 20 miles up the road. So it was a fairly easy trip for them. But nevertheless, they still had to find the exact spot. And the, the really great thing about these transmitters is the data is so accurate. So we knew within a few metres where that bird should be. So... Karim and Mohammed went to the spot 
and initially they found a pile of feathers and they sent us some photos and we could see that they were the feathers of a young osprey so that really kind of showed that almost certainly the bird was dead but we still didn't have the conclusive proof and then that came the next day when Mohammed went back and actually found the transmitter and the remains of the bird the, re the other remains of the bird so sadly we know that Carr had died and then of course the question is how did he die well looking at the photos Karim and uh, Mohammed have sent us and also their own observations in the field it looks very likely that the bird was perched on the ground and it was grabbed probably by a fox or a dog so actually very similar to what happened to the bird in Paul and this is the problem for these young ospreys they're you know they're they're kind of building up their life skills but they're quite naive and so it was presumably just sitting somewhere it thought was safe and this mammal grabbed it and and, and sadly it died but the reality is that most young ospreys don't survive. That bird actually did very well to get to Morocco. Migration is an incredibly demanding time for them and we know that probably of a brood of three young ospreys, only one will ever make it back to the UK. So sadly, when you're following an individual bird, of course you really want it to make it, but the chances are that, that two thirds of them won't. Roy Dennis has been working with ospreys for more than 50 years, so he's witnessed the struggle of ospreys on migration year in, year out. We went together to a nest near our house, the birds now flown on migration. It's funny coming out here, and the ospreys are gone. The last one was here probably about 10 days ago, and uh, the grass is going to go yellow fields may be covered in snow in the winter, the old nests will be covered in snow, there'll be hell of a gales that may rip it down but so far it's stayed up there and then to think that last days of March next year I'll come up again and uh, the bird might be back, it's amazing really. But this is the nest where Beatrice was here for a long time and she used to winter in in Spain, just north of Gibraltar. And then on her migrations, she used to stop in a kind of wetland area just north of the Pyrenees in France. So her migration run very far from Gibraltar to here, unlike probably her mate who had come all the way from Guinea-Bissau or somewhere like that. One year she made a mistake and she came north too early. And if only she had waked it a week longer. And when she got to the Basque country, it became the week of really appalling weather. Heavy rains, complete overcast, the rivers were running like mad, the estuaries were full of, you know, silt and discoloured, and she couldn't find any fish. And she tried two or three estuaries, no luck, and she went up a river. There was no way she would catch fish in a river of torrent. And she died. She was found on the riverbank, um, you know, emaciated. And that was a mistake. But, of course, they don't know what the weather's going to do when they set off. So the biggest killer in some ways, especially for adult birds, is to get caught in bad weather. Do you know, I actually bit back the words. That's really sad because that's my first instinct 
you know, I haven't worked with ospreys. I've I've inherited ospreys, if you like, through being married to you. But I, I don't have that distance that you obviously have. I'm not sure it's a distance. I think it's just a, a rational thinking. So that if a bird dies like that with very bad weather, you know, that's just life. What really annoys me, if a bird kind of is heading north and someone just out shooting at targets shoots down an osprey. And then that's really... That's, I'm not sad, I'm just annoyed. That's a waste. It's a waste. But the recognition is that these birds have many issues to overcome on their migrations. The sound of ospreys is given away to the sound of pheasants under this nest. Funny, we live a mile down the road, Roy, and I've never stood under this nest. Really? Never been here. I've only seen it from the distance. Well, of course, when the ospreys are here, then you wouldn't come under the tree. No. Um, but here, you know, they've been away for two weeks. I've known that nest for over 40 years. And this bird, when she's on that nest, she can see her mate coming from the estuary. She probably can even see him fish because this is a very high spot. We've never climbed that tree. It's far too dangerous. Because it's dead? It's dead. I think it's got a bit more of a lean on actually. And it's like iron. And my friends can look at it from their sitting room window and nowadays they have a very good telescope and a tripod. So <laughs> I'm just thinking about this whole ownership idea, you know, because they're looking out of their window, they must think that's our osprey. And, oh, and very much so. And we tend to think of our ospreys when they go off to Africa, but of course in Africa they probably think they're their ospreys. And you were saying about tracking the bird, you could see Beatrice was getting into trouble and she was in the wrong area because of the weather. And that closeness, you know, probably, or obviously quite recently, you'd say goodbye to the ospreys in the autumn and not think about them again till they got back or not. That's very true. You know, they might only be ringed with metal rings and the chance of knowing anything about them. And then we put distinctive coloured rings on their legs so people might see them in Africa or might see them on migration. And then suddenly, in recent years, the quality of the cameras nowadays is so good with the telephoto lenses that so many people photograph ospreys and then see there's a ring and can identify the number and the colour and get in touch with us and we know which bird it is. But these nests go on from generation to generation. So Beatrice didn't come back, but then there's another young female to take her place. And her mate, I think, lasted two more years and then he died. And then a new male took over the young female. So. When you look at these nests that are continuously used, so there'll be a male who may breed with a female for 10 years. A female dies, he gets a new mate, he lives for another five years, he dies, a new male, 
And so they're kind of leapfrogging through the generations. And that's the phrase you used last week about the migration, leapfrogging. So there's this constant movement across the planet, but also in time, one bird weaving in with another. And I, that gives you the longer view, if you like, when you hear about one or two or ten losses. Yeah, I think it is. That, that is the important thing. We've sometimes come to these nests in the winter or the following year, and you find the remains of a young osprey on the ground, just a few feathers and some bones because probably something like three or four percent of them even when they're flown from the nest and they still use this as a place to get food from their male parent they might die they might be killed by a goshawk they might be killed at night maybe in a tree by a, a martin or that would be unusual or their brothers and sisters take all the fish and they just die of starvation. So you're seeing then how these um, birds work, that a few die before they migrate, more die on the migrations, and the winners come back to breed. But winning is not always skill. It can be also the toss of the dice. I was about to say, uh, does that mean the ones that come back are the top quality ones? Have they chosen a better route? Have they found a better roost place? Have they done something right when another osprey has done something wrong? I think that's probably true, that they're the ones that are in the best condition um, because they've chosen the, and fought for the best place to live in Africa. So they return with a heavier weight. But there's still chance... And even some birds that you think are not going to survive make it. I remember long ago I was ringing the birds at the famous Loch Garten nest of the RSPB and I found a fish hook and a load of nylon line down the throat of a bird, a chick. Uh, and it's still alive. But it had all this kind of out of it and I managed to cut it all off but I couldn't extract the hook and I thought, mm, I'm not sure that bird may not survive. Do you know that bird came back and bred not very far from Loch Garten for maybe 10 or 12 years? And the hook must have become embedded in its throat and kind of calloused over. So even when they have sometimes have a bad start to life, they can still force their way through. I still um, admire, really, I suppose is the word, your ability to tell a story like that and then I bet when that osprey did eventually die you didn't feel particular sadness I'm trying to get to that distinction between sadness for an individual because gradually you are getting to know these birds as individuals and you're still able to have that objectivity where does that come in just from experience I suppose and I think it's working with wildlife um, full-time it's not just working with one species, it's working with a whole range of different species, not necessarily, you know, birds. You might be working on mammals as well. And so you recognise that life is difficult in the wild. Um, and what we're trying to do with ospreys is we try to make certain that their nest sites are secure and that they don't get damaged in a winter storm because we, we're still wanting numbers to increase. But if you work with wildlife, you have to accept these things. I, I really find that nowadays that uh, people can identify with wildlife more. They're able to understand more their individual journeys and trials and tribulations, which wasn't possible in the past. 
but I think at the same time it's important to be able to rationalize those and recognize that the bird you're particularly interested in is part of a kind of fabric of individual birds going through the centuries. I just hope if I die before you, Roy, you're not at my funeral <laughs> saying, ah, well, that's life. <laughs> just thrashing through some nettles and some bracken and some brambles. You can hear the autumn coming, can't you, in the treetops? This autumn, I think the migration of young ospreys from Scotland will have been good because there have been no serious kind of gales on the way south and they should have got easily into Africa. Whereas other years, when they leave here, sometimes with good weather, and then when they get to the Bay of Biscay, there's the most intense, very, very strong easterly winds. And I remember one of our young birds going out of uh, South Wales and then Devon, and it caught these really horrendous easterly winds, and it blew it right out into the Atlantic, nearly as far as the Azores. And in the end, before it was blown back by the westerly winds on the other side of the weather system, it had travelled 3,000 kilometres and flown non-stop for 60 hours before being dumped unceremoniously by bad weather on the coast of southern Portugal. It managed to survive. It went into some reservoirs and stayed there for the winter and the next year. And then some years later, my good friend uh, Davy Anderson at Aberfoyle found her nesting. And she nested for many years down there. Now that was a bird that should have died. But she kept flying in horrible weather. And she survived and she came back to breed. And conversely, look at Carr. He had a magnificent migration until he had bad luck on the shores of that reservoir. Yes, and what he was doing there was he had obviously decided that he would do what we call a stopover. So he'd stopped on that reservoir near Marrakesh and would have been catching fish there. And what happened was that he probably had caught a fish dragged it onto the side of the water might have been a really big fish and he couldn't fly out with it and he was eating it and a fox saw a chance and rushed in and grabbed it but the birds that have lived in our countries in the summer whether it be warblers or waders or ospreys and so on when they go south they can easily be food for another animal living down there and that fox would have had an extremely good feed from that bird. So that's kind of what it is. The other bird decided not to have a stopover and kept going and got to West Africa. So you can either decide you're going to go all the way quickly or you decide you're going to have a stopover somewhere. And those stopovers might be in England, they could be in France or Spain, or they may be in North Africa. And uh, generally speaking, and that's a good strategy. You know, you spend 10 days there, feed up, and off you go. So how about Desha? How is she getting on? I asked Tim McCrill, who works with the Roy Dennis Wildlife Foundation. Well, Desha's done really well. Um, Desha, we were worried about initially. Of the two, we were actually more worried about Desha because Desha are 
few a couple of weeks ago was in Algeria and that meant that she was faced with a really long flight across the Sahara and we now know having got the data that she crossed the Sahara and it took her eight days so you just imagine what a demanding journey that is for a young osprey to fly across this most incredibly inhospitable terrain but she did it and she got across the Sahara. She didn't quite arrive in West Africa because she was still quite a long way to the east. So she flew through Mali and into Mauritania and then into Senegal. And initially she flew to the Casamance region of southern Senegal, which is an area favoured by ospreys from the UK. We know there's lots of suitable habitat, but the big problem for young ospreys when they first arrive is that Whenever they go to a good spot, they're invariably adult ospreys who chase them off. So having spent a couple of days in Casamance, um, Desha has now flown up into the Gambia. And the last data we have is that she would just cross the River Alahine into the Gambia. And she'll probably continue exploring until she finds somewhere to settle and where she's not chased off by these adult ospreys. But so far, so good. It took her 18 days to get to Senegal initially, which is a fantastic migration for a young osprey. You know, you think that bird had been flying for four or five weeks before she left, and then she's done this incredible journey in less than three weeks. So she's done really well, and we're now keeping our, our fingers crossed. She finds somewhere safe for the winter, and maybe just maybe in a couple of years she'll be back in Scotland. And of course JJ who we heard from last week will be able to go and find her. And that's the great thing it's a bit like the guys in Morocco we've got people contacts on the ground in Gambia who can go out and check the location so if she stays in Gambia it would be fantastic if JJ could go and have a look and see if he can find her. And you can follow Desha's migration via maps on the foundation's website at www.roydennis.org. In the past seven weeks, this podcast has looked at white-tailed eagles and ospreys in the south of England, and soon, in the autumn, we'll be turning to red squirrels and mountain hare in Scotland. Thank you for listening. Please carry on posting your reviews. And if you like this, please share it with others so that we can spread the word on the work of the Roy Dennis Wildlife Foundation. And the music, by the way, is Realness by Kai Engel and is downloadable from the Free Music Archive.